to America and Canada. Greetings to the rest of the listening on HughHewitt.com. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. The Hillsdale Dialogue, we call it, when I always sit down with either Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, or one of his wonderful colleagues at Hillsdale College. This week, historian and classicist Victor Davis Hanson joins us. Dr. Hanson, welcome back. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me, you. Well, you came to mind because of an extraordinary speech that was given on May 21st by President Xi Jinping of China. And he went to the geographic location of where the Long March began 80-plus years ago in Jiangxi province. And he told a cheering crowd, now there is a new Long March and we should make a new start. That's significant, uh, I think, Dr. Hansen. And I wanted to go through with you today what the Long March was, what happened in China during World War II, and where we are now as a result of both of those things. Let's start with the Long March. Well, it was, Mao was pretty desperate. So the United States had finally, at least some people, had decided that he wasn't the Abraham Lincoln that dissidents in the State Department were claiming. So we started to give massive aid to Chiang Kai-shek um, in a way that we hadn't before the war. And uh, Chiang Kai-shek was actually, I, I guess you could say, the nationals were winning. We should remember, though, in that context, that by 1944, uh, earlier, before the, the, war, the Long March, half of China was occupied by Japan at least maybe 60%, and the Japanese would go on to kill 15 or 16 million people. And there was a feeling in China that um, the United States either couldn't or had not done enough or had given it to the wrong person. And what I'm getting at is when the, when the aid came late but got to over the hump, the flying over Burma when Burma was lost to the Japanese, Chiang Kai-shek had plenty of material resources, but still all other advisors had said he was incompetent. Whatever the truth was, there was a feeling in China that even with all of his resources, he wasn't going to be able to defeat the Japanese quickly and unite the country. And then when the war was over, Japan was still in occupation of about most all of Korea and half of China. And then uh, Chiang Kai-shek thought that he would just absorb that. He got more USA, and he uh, almost wiped out Mao. Mao, in so-called long march, marched out uh, when he was surrounded and, of course, rallied the pe- peasants to his side. And there was a... I, w- I would say really one thing's really important in this whole dialectic view is that Mao had the superior propaganda because what he was arguing was that the revolution or the liberation of World War II continued and that the United States had flipped. In other words, uh, we had to rebuild Japan, we had to rebuild Italy, we had to rebuild Germany. The Soviet Union then was fueling national liberation movements from Burma to Mao all over in Eastern Europe, and its argument was we're fighting the wartime governments, the United States is in collusion with the truth was we were trying to democratize them and rebuild them, but it was a bad propaganda for us, and uh, Mao, unfortunately, was the more romantic character to a lot of Western watch. Let, let me fill in. You dropped a little bit on your phone there, Victor, so I want the yep. audience to get the basic. Uh, the, the Long March begins, and really the, 
the, the Chinese Civil War begins before that. But in 1934, the Long March begins. And Mao has to retreat. China is invaded by Japan. Japan crushes them. And the Civil War began before Second World War II, and it ended after Second World War II with yeah. the loss of, of China to Mao by Chiang Kai-shek. The second part that people need to understand is what happened there during World War II. You just finished the new book, The Second World Wars. And I think you covered flying over the hump pretty uh, extensively. My, my uncle was one of those pilots who flew over the hump. Yeah. We tried very hard not to, to kill Mao. We tried very hard to win the war and keep anybody in the field against Japan. We did. Remember that when the Japan, Japanese government took Burma, then we were, not, we were completely cut off from China by land until we got the Burma Road open again. So we had to fly over the Himalayas with DC-3s or C-47s or whatever we call them. And we kept the, uh, the wartime government alive. But the problem that we had was the resistance to the Japanese was broken down into three parts. There was Mao's communist uh, rural peasant insurrection that had been going on, as you said, for eight or nine years. And then there was the official government Chongqing of Chiang Kai-shek, and then there was a puppet government in Manchuria uh, that worked with the Japanese. And the result of all that was the Japanese army killed about 15, 16 million people, 80% of whom were civilians. And if you look at any, any army in World War II of losses and deaths inflicted, the Japanese were the most effective killers of any army, even more than the Nazis. So they just pretty much had a, a free hand in China, and they nearly destroyed the country. So so what people, I, I think, from the Second World War, your new book, people will get the impression uh, that this was a hugely important theater, and they won't know anything about it. We, we don't know much about the Eastern Front in Russia as Americans. We know about the Pacific War, and we know about the war for Europe, the liberation of Europe, but we really don't know about China and Burma. How significant was that uh, to the ultimate defeat of Imperial Japan? Well, it was very important. One of the reasons we don't know it is that Burma was a, Burma and Southeast Asia had been European colonies, and that's, Burma had been a British colony. So Britain, once the uh, invasion of Normandy had taken place, it was able to pour resources. So from mid-1944 to the end of the war, they had over a million people that were eventually deployed in Burma, and we bifurcated. We said that we would supply troops to help the British by 44, and we would uh, do the logistical support to supply the Chinese. But Britain was worried about India and protecting India. And the result was that our huge Pacific fleet, which at this time was bigger than all the fleets in the world put together, was going to island hop. MacArthur was going to go Operation Cartwheel. Nimitz was going to island hop. We were going to head right toward Japan, and there was sort of a tension between us and the British that we claimed that we were out to, to get rid of Japan as quickly as possible, and we accused them of worrying more about getting the Japanese out of their colonial territories. And the result was that China was important, but it wasn't in a direct trajectory. We didn't even go into Formosa, but we went through the Pacific, and Britain went first to recapture Burma. And it, I mean, it, it was a pretty nasty fight. Japanese almost got to India in late 1944 of all time. When we come back from break, I'm going to have you describe Joe Stillwell to people, because I don't think many people know about our other great general 
And I don't think people quite understand how deeply invested we were in China. But that that long march rhetoric, uh, let's close this segment on that. Mao was always aware of propaganda. I mean, he was a master propagandist. Yeah, I mean, that the whole point was that he posed as an oppressed man of the people and that he was against this corrupt Western-trained Chiang Kai-shek dynasty and that he was authentic, he was genuine, and he would create a peasant republic. And there were people who bought it in the U.S. State Department. And, and Chiang Kai-shek had really alienated Stilwell. So Stilwell was a great general, but... In the long view of things, he hated Chiang Kai-shek, and that animus was translated through the military and into the State Department as if Chiang Kai-shek was less preferable than Mao. Not that we backed Mao, but we were really naive what what he was all about, because after all, by the end of the 20th century, he had killed more of his own people, 60 million, than either Stalin or Hitler. Why did Stilwell dislike Chiang Kai-shek so much? Because once we started the uh, airlift, and then once we got the Burma Road, we sent, the United States has sent millions, billions of, of aid to the Chinese nationalist government. They had a huge army, but Stilwell was trying to be holistic uh, in, in the sense that he said, if you're going to match uh, the popularity of Mao and you're going to really uh, fight the Chinese, you've got to make some land reform. You've got to make uh, some reform on the way of, of human rights. And you've got to compete with the ideas of Mao. And he felt that Chiang Kai-shek was more interested in using American supplies to eliminate Mao first and then the Japanese second. And Chiang Kai-shek kept lecturing Stilwell that you don't know the true nature of Mao. These are you know, mass murderers and won't do any good. Uh, to defeat the Japanese if they're still viable. So it was a three-way fight. And, of course, Japan was fueling that animus between Chiang Kai-shek and Mao, and then they had their own, as I said earlier, puppet. I'll be right back with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, author of The Second World Wars. One short segment on who Fighting Joe Stilwell was, and then we go to what did President Xi mean when he invoked the long war? Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. It's the last radio hour of the week here on the Hugh Hewitt Show from the ReliefFactor.com studio inside the Beltway. And that always means the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including online courses by lecturers such as Victor Davis Hanson, a fellow at Hillsdale College for many years. His series on the Second World Wars, plural, is based on his book by the same name. And it's really an extraordinary book, and people should go and get it. Uh, Dr. Hanson, a lot of Americans, even those who've had terrible history teachers, know who Eisenhower is, and they know who MacArthur is. They may not know who George Marshall is or Nimitz, but they, they know the big two. I don't think anybody knows Joe Stilwell at all. What, what is his great gift, and what is his great flaw as a general responsible for the Allied effort in China? Well, he was, his theory was, or he, what he was trying to convince people was that the majority, we've got to remember that, the majority of the three million man Japanese army was tied down in China. It wasn't in the Pacific. It was, it was about 40%, 30% was in the Pacific. And so what he was trying to argue is that China is, I mean, sort of like their modern day, uh, later, latter day Vietnam was to us. And that he could tie this huge army down that had been there in Manchuria, at least since 31 and 32. 
and in China itself in 36 and 37. And he needed more supplies, and so he was very, they call him Vinegar Joe because he was very acerbic in criticizing the allotment of resources. And he he wasn't convinced that the, the strategy of going into the Philippines, for example, even though that happened after he was relieved, but the, and he wasn't really convinced that uh, the Chendits or Merle's Marauders or all of these counterinsurgency forces that were trying to work in Burma to get back uh, the province for the British and open up supply lines with China would work. What he really wanted to do was to get massive amounts of U.S. materiel and then arm a huge Chinese conventional army and join in an alliance with Mao and Chiang Kai-shek and then crush the Japanese or at least divert so many more of their resources they would be much easier for us to go on the southern route through the Pacific. But the problem was is he was a very poor diplomat. So naturally he knew Chiang Kai-shek much better than Mao. Chiang Kai-shek's wife was Western. She was fluent English. I think she died at 103 in the United States recently. But the point I'm making is that he got caught up in an obsession with not liking Chiang Kai-shek and he didn't fully appreciate how well the Chiang Kai-shek family was integrated within the American State Department and Roosevelt administration. And so he was relieved of command. And uh, China never really became a place where the United States could launch the defeat of Japan. And we didn't, as I said, we didn't go to Formosa. We tried putting some B-29s into Chinese bases and Indian bases. It was too hard to supply them. And so we just concluded by early 1944, that the way to get to Tokyo was not through China, but it was going to island, and even not through the Philippines, the way MacArthur had envisioned, but it was going into the Mariana Islands, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, and getting bases for heavy bombing of Japan. It's unfair to ask a historian, but I'm doing it anyway. If China had not stayed in the war, and those millions of Japanese troops had not been tied down in China... How would the Pacific War have differed? Well, I think it would have been, we, we wouldn't have been able to, to win as quickly as we did. We've got to remember that the worst loss the United States suffered in the Pacific didn't come until April to July of 1945, just weeks before the end of the war at Okinawa. We suffered 55,000 casualties and 12,000 dead. Uh, in Okinawa, and that was to get rid of 200,000, 100,000 Japanese troops and 100,000 Okinawan auxiliaries. If they had had another three or 400,000, which would have been very possible given they probably had about a million and a half people uh, or more in China station, then it would have been a nightmare. But uh, China was a big drain on the Japanese empire, and to occupy such a large country had about 600 million people at the time. And they were 350 million were under occupation. So you can see that it never proved out. It was a big contention uh, in the Japanese military. The Navy was very angry about it. They thought too many resources went to the Army in China. When we come back, we go to post-war China. After that trauma, so many millions of people dying, a civil war erupts, Mao wins, and now Mao is back in the speeches of Xi Jinping. What does it mean? We'll talk with Victor Davis Hanson about it after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio in Washington, joined by 
Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, historian and classicist uh, from Hillsdale College's Deep Bench of Scholars. His most recent book about the war is uh, The Second World Wars. And I have taken it with me uh, on trips to Israel and Turkey and other journalists have looked at it longingly and I didn't share. But it does end at the end of the war. And that is the point where I pick up next. After the war, there was a conti- or a re-eruption of the Chinese Civil War, which had really begun, I think, in the 20s. And it, yeah. it just went on and on and on until 1949. Why did Chiang Kai-shek lose that to Mao, do you think, Dr. Hansen? Well, I think he was never able to, to communicate as much as you could in rural China that he could bring a radical change in uh, property ownership and land redistribution because it was still a feudal society. And then, as I said earlier, Mao was a brilliant propagandist, and as Stalin did, they made this worldwide message that the United States had flipped and had abandoned its democratic principles and now was trying to, in line with militarists uh, in Japan and Italy and Germany, becoming anti-communist, but furthering the same pre-war ideology is a lie. But uh, at certain points in 1946, 47, 48, we still, in places like Korea and Burma, there were still organizations from the Japanese occupation that we use, especially right after the war. And when Xi says that, you know, I think one thing to remember is that when he mentions the long march and where he was almost exterminated, Mao, and then subsequently the war that took 16 million, and then subsequently the civil war, which took another seven or eight million. She's saying that we're victimized. We've all been, we've all been counted out during the long march, the war, the civil war, second phase, and we're going to fight to the end. And so I think that's the message that we should also remember. It suggests to us that this myth that the Chinese communist apparatus is somehow liberalizing as it becomes wealthier and as trade becomes freer is not true. They still see themselves as hardened Stalinists that have been picked on and victimized and will prevail against overwhelming odds. From 1949, and the Chinese Civil War, I, I don't know what the best single volume on it is. It's very complicated for a Westerner. There are scores of battles between the nationalists and Chiang Kai-shek versus Mao and the communists, but eventually... Uh, they're forced to Taiwan, the nationalists are, and Mao establishes a party of one, in essence. Uh, he, is, he becomes the dictator of all of China, a reversion to the norm of emperors, really. And from 49 to 72, he has nothing to do with the United States. Then Nixon, and now I've become the, the new director, uh, new CEO and president of the Nixon Foundation. We focus on this a lot. Nixon went there in the stunning Nixon to China move. And from 72 until maybe four years ago, the relationship between China and the PRC and, and the United States was excellent, but it's all gone south, Victor Davis Hanson. Why, and do we need to arrest that, or do we have to confront it? Well, it's gone south because people for the last 30 years said that infringement uh, on copyrights or technological appropriation is the cost of doing business, or... Um, patent violations or dumping or currency manipulation, that was all tolerable because two things were going to happen. China was going to westernize or collapse, the Communist Party would collapse as it had in Russia, and therefore it would be a citizen of the world. And as it got wealthier, it would start to obey the World Trade Organization, GATT, 
all of these international norms. And it would not translate that largesse into a military, colonial, neo-imperial project. That hadn't, that had that has not happened. And so we've created and we've called normal a very abnormal situation where they run up $400 billion. They own 50 ports that strategic took own in a sense of long-term leases, 50 ports all over the world. And their ideology is that in the, as they say at the party congresses, that they're destined to world hegemony. And nobody has figured out how to counter that. A lot of people have extensive business interests in China. A lot of economists have said, you know what, we're free market people. It makes us leaner and meaner when they cheat. When they cheat, it's not going to be sustainable. When they cheat, it gives us cheap goods for stagnant wage, middle class. They have all sorts of rationales. But the problem is that nobody wants to bell the cat. We all say, well, we, this is a bad situation. We should put a bell around this marauding cat, but nobody wants to do it. Because to do it, you have to resort to a Neanderthal, confrontational, tariff mindset. We thought we'd, you know, we'd gone beyond that in the 21st century. Now, this is where I'm getting to, the mindset one needs. What Xi said is we need the mindset of the long march, which is so evocative for the ordinary Chinese. You are also, at the same time you've just finished this book, The Second World Wars, you just put out a bestseller, The Case for Trump. Victor Davis Hanson, do you think that the president's Trump policies on China are actually part of his appeal to the average American? Do you think that is front of mind for the average voter, that he is willing to bell the cat? Well, I think the polls show that people support what he's doing because what he's, it's an affront to the entire Council on Foreign Relations establishment. And it's a front to the entire uh, elite economic uh, mindset, if I could use that word again. Because what he's saying is that deficits count, trade cheating counts, China's never going to liberalize, China's going to use this money that it's, it's accruing, and it's largely through unfair trade, for other purposes that are contrary to world government, world stability. And I think people in the Midwest appreciate that. And they're saying to themselves, wait a minute, we have the cheapest, now we have the cheapest electricity and energy cost in the world. We've got a great location. We've got a stable government. And we've got good workers. And we can't produce things because other countries, but particularly China, have targeted our industries to destroy them. That's Trump's message. And whether it's accurate and 100% or not doesn't matter. It's appealing to a lot of people. And note that the criticism comes from the elite, not from the rank and file. The elite say, as I said before, that there's, there's benefits actually in China running up uh, a huge deficit with us, uh, a surplus in our deficit, because they feel that it will make us more competitive. Or as I said, we get affordable things that we otherwise would not be able to purchase or it weakens China in the long run. But that just hasn't happened. We haven't seen China weaken. Now, do you think that this is propaganda by China, that they're attempting to wage diplomacy by invoking war, or are we really into a confrontation that will be a decade long, two decades long? Uh, Because President Trump thought he could use tariffs, and in fact, our economy is a lot stronger and bigger than their economy, and they sell a lot more to us than we sell to them. Is he wrong about this? No, he's not. And that's, I think, the experts. Are, 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 you know, we have Sandra Thornton, our next State Department official, go over there 
and tell the Chinese last week, you'll just hang on and wait for another administration, you'll win. But because they're not winning, remember that we have one-third the population of China, and we produce two-and-a-half times the GDP that China does. Our universities dominate all world rankings of research institutions. Not one of China's does. Our military is about four times larger than theirs. We're the largest food exporter. We're the largest energy exporter and producer. So we have all of the cards, and they don't, and they know that. But what we don't have is, and thank God we don't, is an authoritarian, dictatorial narrative as they do. So they're telling their people that we're going to win and the United States is weakening. But a disinterested observer looks at this and says, wow, China needs the United States market much more than we need the Chinese market. America's got all the economic, cultural, social advantages. China does not. And China overshot. China preempted. Had China been careful, they might have reached parity with the United States, but they were greedy and they were too overt. We have... 350,000 students in the United States, and if 1% of them, and there's more than 1%, are actively engaged in espionage, you could have 3,500, 4,000 Chinese operatives, and and we know that. Two high-ranking CIA agents just this month of May, uh, Mr. Mallory and Mr. Lee, were arrested in the D.C. area and sentenced. Their sentencing went down this week for espionage for China, and so... I mean, when you have a head of the Senate Intelligence Committee at the time, Dianne Feinstein, who admits that her chauffeur for 20 years was passing on information to Chinese interests, that's pretty scary. The penetration operation of the PRC is so underestimated. I used to do this in the, in the 80s, uh, prepare warrants for the signature of two attorneys general to go to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Court to follow the bad guys in our country. Uh, and the bad guys and the bad girls came from all different countries. My guess, though, it's a guess. I haven't had clearances since 88. My guess is that if you were to compare the relative number of warrants against uh, uh, non-Chinese actors versus Chinese actors, then to today, it would have completely flipped. That's my guess. Uh, no, I think, you, you're, I think you're right. And I... I think the thing also, we should remember what Henry Kissinger once said, among his many brilliant things. We want to be no worse friend to China than it is to Russia. Or flip, we want to be just as friendly with Russia as Russia thinks China is, and just as friendly as China as China thinks Russia is. And we've lost that Russian card. And I know that Russia's sunk in its strategic importance, but this whole collusion hoax has really eliminated one card that we used to play because China has a lot of vulnerabilities with Russia. Russia still has 7,000 nuclear weapons that are deplorable. So we've lost that, and we've lost a lot of traditional ways of hampering uh, China. And we've got to, during the last eight years of the the Obama administration, fairly or not, people like Taiwan, the Taiwanese, the South Koreans, the Japanese were unsure whether they were still, or if they were at all, under the American nuclear umbrella, they were unsure if the United States would support them if they pushed back on air and sea territorial violations. So this is a very dangerous time, you, because any time you're, you're transitioning from appeasement to deterrence, what was abnormal had been considered normal, and now what's normal is being considered provocative and abnormal. Yeah, that's weird. Trump is trying to, yeah, it is. He's trying to restore the status quo. 
When I come back, uh, we will talk about the so-called Thucydides trap with a man who's actually written quite a lot about the Peloponnesian Wars, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson. Is, is the United States actually in the Thucydides trap with the People's Republic of China? We'll find out in the next segment. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Victor Davis Hanson. He's the author most recently of The Second World Wars and the best-selling The Case for Trump. We are talking right now about China and the United States. And, of course, from the position of someone who runs the Nixon Foundation, I've always hoped that that relationship would get stronger and stronger and more transparent and more like the relationship we have with our Western allies. That has not happened. Uh, But what has happened is a lot of talk from Graham Allison, very noted political scientist and others, about the so-called Thucydides trap. What does he mean by that, uh, Dr. Hanson, and do you agree with him? Uh, what he's saying is throughout history, starting with uh, the Athenian Empire uh, in 431, that when a uh, when a established power uh, like Sparta, that's the point he makes, sees a rising rival like the Athenian Empire, then it preempts, or it has to, it gets nervous because the geostrategic equilibrium is disrupted. So what Allison is saying is that the United States is the world's superpower and has been for about 20 years since the fall, the end of the Cold War and even uh, before that, 30 years. And now a rising China will create such tension that that relationship is going to be inherently unstable and there's going to be a war because uh, the, the existing superpower, the United States, will preempt or do things. Uh, because of the fear of a rising Sparta dash, I mean, a dash Athens will play the role of Sparta, and China will play uh, the role of of uh, Athens. But the problem, you is if you look at the Peloponnesian War, they didn't go. There's a word one time, Phobos, in the text of Thucydides that uh, the rising fear of Athens. That was it. If you look at the, the totality of Thucydides' exegesis, it's they went to war as they had uh, in the first Peloponnesian War and as they had fallen out after the Persian War because their systems were antithetical. They had democracy in Athens, you had Ionian culture, you had a cosmopolitan society, you had a naval power, and in Sparta you had a parochial, Doric, conservative, land-based power. That were The two systems were antithetical, so... What I'm saying is that when these when countries go to war, it's usually because their systems are so antithetical. If China was Japan right now, and, and we, we had the same so-called Thucydides trap when Japan, remember Japan incorporated in the 1980s that we thought was going to take over the world? Correct. Nobody talked of a war because they were a democratic parliamentary system that was an ally of the United States. So the problem with China isn't that it's a rising power that will create a paranoid response or, or uh, will make us have to confront it. But the problem is that it's a dictatorial, authoritarian, communist country with a history of mass murder that, you know, 70 million people have now killed, 60 to 70. And it's antithetical to the open, cosmopolitan, transparent society of the United States. And that's the problem, not that uh, the disequilibrium and relative power it's a contributing factor, but it's not It's not going to make us go to war or not go to war. Now, I've always believed, Victor Davis Hanson, I'd love your comments on this to close out this conversation, that the Soviet Union fell apart because the people who ran it had too much to lose in terms of money, influence, power, and authority. 
And rather than go to a confrontation with the West, they held on to their money. I think in China, there are a lot of billionaires. There's, a, there's an upper class that is genuinely enormously wealthy, people like Jack Ma, et cetera. And they have no incentive in a, uh, a wealth-destroying confrontation with the United States. Therefore, I'm not as concerned about the Thucydides trap, provided that we're firm now. What do you think? I, I agree somewhat, but there's a chief difference, and that is during the Cold War, the 50-year Cold War, there were not a... Uh, heavily invested Russian elite uh, overseas. And by that, I mean they didn't have an escape hatch. So you're right, absolutely right. They had a lot to lose. But in the case of China, there's hundreds of billions of dollars that are invested everywhere from Beverly Hills to Lucerne, Switzerland. And the ideology of the Chinese elite is at some point this thing is going to blow up because of the wealth uh inequality and instability of the Chinese government trying to circle the square the circle of you know democracy and capitalism and authoritarian communism it's not going to work and they put their offshore money and gosh if you go to Vancouver or Seattle or you go to Paris the Chinese are what the Arab nations were uh, magnified or squared a hundred times in the 70s and so what I'm worried about is that the Chinese government has already factored into the idea that if they got tent, there's a lot of people who were would just leave the country, and if they were critics or they were opposed, rather than have a coup or rather than the system break down, you have two Chinas now. You have the mass of 1.3 billion people, uh, but you also have about 200 million or 100 million who have the elites that run the country that are invested globally all over the world in a really not not going to lose if china has uh, internal problems they have bolt holes all over interesting more on that the next time vdh comes back go get his books the case for trump and the second world wars this completes this week's hillsdale dialogue thank you all thank you ben thank you adam thank you Dwayne. see you monday on the next you with you at show